So today on the podcast, uh, we have Paul Tracy. Uh, if you don't know who Paul Tracy is, you've been living under a rock. He's an all-time Canadian race car legend, uh, not afraid to speak his mind, and uh, he's got some absolutely hilarious stories, uh, some cool 90s racing stories. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this one. So uh, if you guys could, give me a five-star rating, share it with some friends. Enjoy. Thanks for uh, taking the time to come on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No problem. No problem. Yeah. Um, so I want to start like I do with all, uh, all, all the racers I have on kind of at the beginning. Uh, I guess if you could paint for me a little bit of a picture of kind of what your really early childhood was like growing up, uh, you know, in Toronto or Scarborough. Uh, for me, I mean, I started out, my dad, uh, claims that he raced motorcycles in in England. I, I haven't been able to confirm that with any type of results or anything, but you know, like like any kid, I, I started out with a with a small mini bike and uh you know it wasn't any any real type of a motorcycle. It was one of those ones with a little Briggs and Stratton motor on it. And it had when you pushed the brake it had this little flap that went down on the wheel and to slow you down. It was just like this square, you know, like those little square motorcycles you see. Yep. And, uh, you know, we'd go out to this field at, uh, the 401 and, and, uh, Morningside Avenue, uh, which wasn't too far from where we lived. And, uh, I would just ride this motorcycle around in the field and around in a circle. And, uh, one day I was, I was at home and, during the summer and, uh, I had a friend over and I, I, I think I was around four, you know, four, five years old. And it's one of those memories that you never forget, you know, like when you're a kid, when you've done something and it just, you never forget it. Uh, I had, the bike was like lean, it was leaned up against the wall and, and I pulled the, the, the starter to start it. And the throttle was like stuck open cause it was leaned up against the wall okay. and it like, it took off across the garage <laughs> And slammed, it slammed into the garage door and like smashed the, you know, smashed a big dent in, in the garage door on, on the inside. So my mom was home and heard this huge crash in the garage and came out and I got a beating for it. And the bike, yeah, yeah the bike went away and it was gone after that. My, and then uh, a few weeks later, uh, my dad came home with uh with a go-kart and uh i remember you know i've actually gotten on this facebook group recently that's uh it was an old whitby cartway facebook group that was started by the uh the, the owner's son uh tom clark okay well uh, the clark clark family was the owner they were the original owners this is probably way before you were born i don't know when you were born but that was like family cartway was like the biggest go-kart track in canada i don't know if you remember that no no i was born in 92 so it was goodwood and mostport for me yeah family cartway was the big it was in whitby was the biggest go-kart track in canada well i think it was one of the biggest go-kart tracks in the world i think it was two miles in land total at wow. four different tracks on four miles it's pretty it was pretty cool and the, the clark family owned the track and they just started a Facebook group and with all these old pictures from the seventies and early eighties and, and oh, it closed, cool. it, it closed down in the nineties, early nineties, maybe. Uh, and it was, uh, 
now it's I think it's a shopping mall and houses and but it yeah. was the it was the place and so my dad came home with a with a go-kart that he had bought from Scott Goodyear's uh, dad had a shop called Good Goodyear's Cart Center and it okay. was on Young Street Young Street and 401 and uh, we went out to the go-kart track that next weekend and uh, entered in the junior class and I remember my first, my, you know, they had a bunch of different classes. If you were a beginner, they had like, there was a lot of kids raced go-karts back then. And they had, you know, multiple classes. You had to start in the D class, you know, and there was maybe 15 or 20. And then if you finished on the podium a couple times, then they'd move you up into C class, B class, A class. And then, so I won my first race and then uh, that was it, man. I was, I was hooked. That's all I wanted to do after that. So your your dad, from what I understand, he owned a construction company, and he was an immigrant immigrant from England. Um, and when you were quite young, did you guys uh, did you have enough money to the point where he f- had desires for you to become a professional race car driver? With him, you know, understanding what it took to get there, or do you did was he just love racing? No, my dad just loved racing and he loved cars and he was really, I mean, I was super young, so I don't, I don't really remember what it was all about back then, but I know that my dad always loved cars. My dad always had, my dad moved to, uh, to England from England to, to Toronto, I believe in 67 or eight with my mom and his brothers came on visas and, uh, they were they were painters back in England for my my dad's actually Irish but they lived in England from when the war happened they moved to England and my granddad was a painter uh, so uh, all the sons were painters and my my dad and my two uncles immigrated immigrated to Canada in 67 68 yep. and uh, they started a painting company and uh, the first big job that they got was in, in 1969 was to paint the CN Tower. Wow. And uh, so there's some pictures online. If you look look up my dad online, Tony Tracy or Paul Tracy's dad, there's pictures of my dad and my uncles uh, at on the top of the CN Tower, at the very top and the needle, you know, painting the, the CN Tower, just hang, hanging up there with ropes tied around their waist. And, and doing that. So, it was, I mean, that was a huge job. I mean, you think about that back in the, oh. in the seventies, what it would cost to build a building like that now uh, versus what it was in the, in the seventies to build something of that size, right? You're talking now it'd be billions of dollars, but yep. you know, back then, I mean, it was, it was a big job for my, for my dad. So he made quite a lot of money right off the bat coming, coming to Canada and, and loved cars and, and my dad was always a car collector. He always loved the English cars. He's always had like old, old Rolls Royces, like seventies, Silver Shadows and cool. uh, Phantoms. And he he liked uh, E Type Jags and and he liked Austin Healy's. Those were his three or his three go to cars. He's he always had he always had a, an E Type. He always had a Healy, and he always had always had a Rolls. And we used to. Uh, you know, when I started racing later on, when I started racing at Goodwood, we used to show up with our with like with my cart stuffed in the back of a of Rolls Royce. No way. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you know, it's just we didn't use a pickup truck or anything. We just stuffed my, stuffed my cart into the back of the 
into the back of the rolls. So not not to gloss over your your very that's amazing first of all, but <laughs> not to gloss over your kind of very early starting. It was, it was funny because I I have I have like a scrapbook of all these pictures and stuff, and uh, you know there's guys at Goodwood that have got like old Renault fives with a roof rack and their carts on top of the roof, and you know there's there's these guys that had like old beat beat up pickup trucks and station wagons and. And all this stuff. And there's my dad. I remember that. I have this picture. And my dad had a, a green, you know, silver shadow. And, and you know, it had all the, you know, Connolly leather and the the, the sheepskin rug, car, carpet mats and all that. And the go-karts, like, stuffed in the back of this thing. And my spare engine's on the floor and gas cans in the back seat. You know, <laughs> so it was, it, was, uh, it was a little bit different. You know, my dad was just, you know, he liked, he loved his cars. And, and uh I guess that's the the correlation between I guess my dad and your dad. Your dad's a huge car guy, so yeah. Well, I mean, we started uh, probably 1999 going to Waterloo Kart Club in a 1979 Vandura with two carts stacked on top of each other, kind of in the back, shag carpet, similar deal. Was that the one? Was that the one that was right off the freeway in Waterloo? Like that was kind of had all the tires around it. Yeah, exactly that there, one. Right yeah. off, right off. Yeah, I, I raced at that track a couple, a few times. Yeah, we would go there as part of our club. Would go around to different, different tracks. Right. So when did you get, uh, you know, not to gloss over like I was saying, your kind of early karting career, but I guess right away you were you were quick and you were successful because I mean, you know, I'm I'm looking through your pictures on Instagram and you're over in Europe already as a junior racing in the worlds. When did when did you realize that you were fast? outside of the little Toronto or even Canadian bubble? Uh, well, I mean, when we started at, at, at uh, Whitby Cartway, I mean, right away I moved up in pretty quickly into the A class. And there's, there's, a, there's some funny stories that go on there. It's like, cause the owner of the track uh, was, his name was, uh, um, I can't remember the dad's name, but it was Clark. And the son's name was Tom Clark and, and, and or uh, Tim Clark, and then there was uh, Tommy Clark was the the kid that was uh, that I raced against. He was a couple years older than me, maybe three years older than me. I was about by the time I got to that level, I was probably about nine, and uh, so we were like ra- we would like be racing back and forth. He was probably I was nine, he was probably twelve, and uh, every time that like I'd be leading a race in a four cycle, you know, we'd be going around the track and we'd get down to the end of the race and, and I would get the meatball flag thrown at me, you know, cause I was leading the race and I was leading the owners, the owner of the track's son. So, you know, the meat, you know, what the meatball flag is right. Something's, <laughs> oh, yeah. falling, something's falling off your cart, but, but there's nothing falling off my cart. Well, this, this happened like, like five weekends in a row. Right. So I'd pull in and nothing wrong with my cart. And they'd say, Oh yeah, well, we thought something was falling off your cart. You have to check it. You know, so we had this, you know, the, after the fifth time, my dad was like, all right, if, if they give you that meatball flag again, just don't come in, just stay out on the track. So I'm going around and we're, you know, it's a, I don't know, eight lap race and, and, uh, you know, six to go or two to go, the meatball flag comes out. So I stay out and I see my dad running. I see my dad running across the, the grass through the, across the track from the pit area. Right. So I'm looking, I'm driving, I'm looking like this, like, where's he going? So I come around to the start finish and I see, you know, he's, he's at the, the starters, he's at the starter 
which is the owner's son. And uh, next lap, I come around, and, and the owner's son, the flagman, he's on the ground, like, crawling away on all fours. <laughs> and my, my, dad, my dad had, like, punched him in the nose and knocked him down and was, like, literally booting him in the ass. <laughs> so we, uh, we got kicked out of the Whippy Cart Club. So uh, we couldn't come there. I, I, they actually let me race a couple more times, and we would have to come to the track and literally park at the entrance of the track. And then I would have to drive my dad's station wagon in. I'm only like nine years old. I would have to drive it in. And then my dad would have to stand outside the fence. And I would have to have, have some friends help me get the card out and get it on a stand. Like our, we had other friends and their dads. Yeah. So, and then, you know, then we decided to, uh, to move cart clubs. And then we went to, uh, to Goodwood and started racing at Goodwood. When I was like, uh, 11, you know, I was 10 years. The next summer, I would have been 10 and 11 years old. And, and they really didn't have a junior, a junior class at Goodwood. It was all two-stroke stuff then. And it was 100cc international. Um, and they didn't really have any juniors that raced up there. So it was all, it was all men that raced at that club. And my dad talked, uh, talked the owners of the track then were the, the Petty family. I don't know. It was, this is way before your time, but it was Mario yeah. Petty owned the track and Mario Petty Jr. So they, they uh, my dad convinced them to let me race with the seniors. And, uh, you know, the hot, the hot guy at that time was, uh, you probably know, you probably raced against his sons. Uh, the, the fastest guy at the track at that time was uh, Crazy Tony. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. his son is his son is Crazy Frank and Crazy yeah. Joe, the yeah. the Lownies, the crazy yeah. the Lownies, right? So they own they own Innisfil now. So yeah. you know, I mean, Crazy Tony was like at that time I was like I don't know 10, 11 years old, and he was a man. I mean, this guy had a beard and he was he was already bald, and he had like these kids running around, and you know he had a box van and like three carts and like he had all the stuff, and we you know here we are showing up and. Um, I'd never raced a, a two stroke before. And, and, uh, you know, so I had to race my first race. I raced against crazy Tony for like a couple years there okay. uh, until I, I raced there at Goodwood a lot until I was, until I turned 16. But, you know, during that time we started race racing more internationally, but, you know, crazy Tony was the guy, you know, he was the local track champion. And, and then I showed up and I said to my, I said to my dad, I remember, this is another thing you, you never forget. Like when you're a kid, I said to my dad, I said, how am I going to beat this guy? This guy's like a, you know, he's a man, yep. you know, he's like, well, listen, I remember the first race I qualified. He was first and I was second. And you know, Goodwood, when you come down the straight, then you got that fast left-hander. Yep. yep. And uh, my dad says to me, listen, if you, if you're alongside of him, just, don't lift off and go in side by side and he'll back off. And I said, well, why would he do that? And he goes, listen, he's got kids and he's got a, he's got a mortgage and he's got, he's got car payments. So if you go in there side by side with him, he's going to lift off. I said, well, okay. And, uh, and I, that's what I did. And he, he lifted off and I ended, I ended up winning the race.
That's amazing. That's a great story. Yeah. No, my first year racing senior, I remember that kind of a similar deal. I'm 15 and I'm lining up on the front row beside Frank, his son. I'm like, ah, this guy's a, this guy's a man. He's been racing for a long time. <laughs> well, I got a funny story about Frank too, because one, another time we were like, I was, we were racing and, and, uh, you know, Goodwood, how the paddock is down lower in the house. The house was up on the hill and had the yep. coffee bar and the downstairs. And it used to have all these plate glass windows. I don't know what it's like now, but it had, you know, in the coffee bar, it had all these glass windows in the front. And then the, the cart shop was kind of off to the side. It's right probably there. the same now still. Yeah. So we're sitting in there during lunch break. We just had qualifying and they had lunch break. And crazy Frank was like, I don't know, he maybe two three years old and he was pestering crazy tony he wanted a chocolate bar and he kept like i want a chocolate bar i want a chocolate bar i want a chocolate bar and he kept saying his dad kept saying no 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 and uh finally his dad like gave him a squat on the on the ass and he went outside crying and you know you know how outside in the front you had that big grass area yep, that runs yep. down and then it goes down into the garage well he's out there like wandering around and he like picks up, he picks up a rock and like fires it through the window, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because he's mad. Yeah. And uh, crazy, t- crazy Tony jumps up and runs out there, and like everybody's in the coffee shop, right? <laughs> so, and uh, he just beats the crap out of Frank. Oh right? boy! Just right in front him, of everyone. Gives, gives him a beat down, right? So, I go down to my cart after that, and you know Frank. Crazy Frank goes down into the pit area and, and I was pitted, you know, along the edge of the track next to the, the time, you know, the little timing shack thing they had. And crazy Tony was like across right next to me where the gridding area was. And, uh, I see, I see, I see crazy Frank. He's got, he's got a ratchet out and a socket and he's like loosening his dad's wheels. <laughs> so he's got he's loosening his back wheels and i'm like oh i'm sitting there going oh my god what's what's he doing right so we line we line up and we go out we push out for the grid and we're like you know again we're like one two on the grid and we go around pace laps and i come into turn one and crazy tony's wheel falls off and he goes off at turn one and goes out and into the tire bear into the hay bales and flips but it was it was crazy frank that had loosened his wheels because he got a beat down in the grass in front of everybody in front of the coffee shop those are that's an amazing story <laughs> wow wow so that's good stuff that's good stuff so so there, but in my mind there's still a big jump from you know racing at Goodwood to going over to the Schumacher's family track in Germany and racing against Michael for the world championship. How, like what bridge that gap for me? Well, I, I was racing, you know, uh, went, you know, we would go to England, uh, to visit my grandparents, me and my dad, uh, during that time when I was like 11, 12. And my dad got friendly with the, the Devenson family that, that had, uh, uh, they built go-karts in England. Um, my dad got friendly with, with zip. Um, so we would go over to England to visit, uh, and, and we would go over there and do some local races and, you know, rent, borrow a cart from somebody and, and go run local tracks. Um, and then in 83, I would have been, uh, 13, 14, 
then uh, we did a deal to go to – I started using these motors that were built out of Germany. It was called a Petri, and they were a very small company, but they, they made like really, really quick motors, but they were really prone to blowing up. Um, and uh, my dad did a deal with this guy that had this engine company in Germany, and, and uh, we got a Swiss Hotless cart, and we went to Germany, and we ran at Kirpen, which was Schumacher's track. And, uh, I mean, we blew up. We were there for a, a week testing, and I'm, we must have blew up 12 engines. It was like every day an engine blew up. And this guy, this old man that built these motors would go away, and he would come back the next morning with another one. And we'd run some laps, and it would blow up. And, you know, I qualified and got through all the heat races and got to the final. But then in the final, right on the warm-up lap, I got, you know, you know how – I'm sure you raced in Europe. Never, never. No, yeah, it gets like chaotic, and guys are like trying to steal your position and yep. run into you and do all this crazy stuff. Well, I got hit on the pace lap uh, in the final, and it bent bent my tie rod, and you know we tried to fix it on the side of the track. So I didn't. I, I only ran a couple laps, and it was with a bent tie rod, and then uh, you know came back from that, and then won the Canadian national championship. Um, did a bunch of races in the States and did a bunch, you know, you know, won a, won a lot more races. And then we decided to go back in 84. Uh, and I, my dad did it. We, we did a deal with um, Peter De Bruin to drive for him, uh, who was the, like a top level dr driver himself and senior and had really quick Perilla motors. And so uh, we went back the, the next year in 84 and I had a really good, really good run and you know won a bunch of heat races and uh ran at the front in the final ran top top five six the whole final of the 84 world championships and then uh ended up finishing sixth in, in the junior worlds and I, after we got back from that my dad decided that you know my go-karting then was we were focusing the next thing was to focus on going car racing and uh you know, we did a, a school at Shannonville yep. and uh, my dad bought a car actually from an F2000 car he bought from Ron Fellows. Uh, so my dad bought this car for me to practice in before we started racing Formula Ford. So I did, you know, all of this end of the summer and fall just practicing in an F2000 car. And my dad somehow talked uh, the owner of Mosport at the time into letting me drive around the track and practice the tower at most port. I don't know if it's the same cause I haven't been there in so long, but they, you know, the concrete tower when you come in the pits that, that, that yeah. Well, it's changed now, but yeah. Yeah. But it used to be this old kind of yeah. beat up concrete tower and the paint was all falling off of it at, at the time. Yeah. So my dad got a hold of the, uh, the owner of the track, which was, his name was Harvey, Harvey Hudis at the time. And your dad would probably know of him. And, uh, my dad said, "Hey, am I? I want to. Would you let my son practice out here? If he, we sign a waiver that you know, if anything happens, we're, you're not responsible. And I'll paint, I'll paint that tower for you, and I'll paint the pit pit walls and, and all oh. that. So they, they they did a little trade out, and he they let me practice out there for for free. So that's how we started the the car racing. And then uh, my first season was '85 in uh, in Formula Fords, uh, which would have been the Ontario." championship in, in formula fords and you must have been quick out of the out of the box having had all that practice under your belt 
Yeah, but it was tough. It was tough. There was some tough, tough competitors. Scott Maxwell was was my main my main competition. It was him. Right. Him and I were the two that went went after each other in in the in the championship. And we would go back and forth, and we would get crashes with each other. And you know, so we fought each other back and forth for uh, the championship. And I I ended up winning the the Ontario championship, and then I ended up winning the Canadian championship at uh, it was at. Uh, San Javid okay, was yep. the was the Canadian final, so um, that's uh, that was my first first year in cars. Right. So so that level of racing for anyone outside of it, like that, I assume your dad funded that that season. Yeah, yeah. My dad, my dad, pretty much funded all all of my racing. We had some sponsors uh, that that we had. You know, I we I went to Europe after that. We went during the winter. I went to Europe and raced in the in the winter series uh, for Van Diemen, mm-hmm. which was kind of sponsored. I was kind got kind of sponsored by Duckham's, so it wasn't it wasn't terribly expensive. But you know, as we as we went up the ladder, like what was what was that jump to you know a big jump to Atlantic say as far as the cost goes? I did two. Two and a half years of uh, of I did a year of Formula Ford, and then the second year I moved to F two thousand, and I ran a Van Diemen in F two thousand, and I won a, I won a couple races in F two thousand, but the the car to have at that time was a Reynard, mm. uh, so it was, it was uh, you know I didn't win the championship in in uh, eighty seven. Spinard Richard Spinard won the championship, I think. Uh, him and I had a bunch of battles and went back and forth with each other and we didn't get along very well <laughs> me and Fr- me and french guys don't get along get along all that well and claude claude bourbonnet was was in there he was very quick and he was in a swift which was also a very good car in eight in uh 86 right so and at so at, at, at this time you know is your like when did you decide that hey i'm gonna make a living at this or when did your you know your dad kind of push you along on this i don't know how it went but i never i never thought about making a living in, t- in it until i was actually an indy car driver that i could make a living in it because really you know, it, i didn't you know i wasn't making any money doing it my dad was having to find the money and raise the money luckily during that time my dad was very very busy with with the construction like during that time there was a big boom in the 80s of of uh GM plants being built in Ontario. They yep. had all those plant plants in Oshawa, uh, out towards uh, Innisfil. There was plants. There was Scarborough, a big plant in Scarborough that was built, a van plant. So my dad was involved in all the construction of of all of that stuff. Um, when the Sky Dome was built, my dad got that contract to to uh, do the paint at the Sky Dome. So there was, I mean, he was really doing well. Yep. With uh, with the construction, so. As I as we moved up through different levels and it was getting more expensive, my dad would basically like leverage, you know, some of the paint companies. I was sponsored by Sherman Williams Paint Company. If you look at some old pictures of me coming up through, through through racing, you'll see Sherman William Sherman Williams a lot. Okay. And uh, my dad my dad would basically tell them, "Look, I gotta buy, uh, you know." a million dollars worth of paint from you, then you need to kick me back X amount or give me X amount of discount. Yep. And that would, that would offset. He would try to offset the racing 
by getting a discount, a big discount or, or kickback for buying a certain brand of paint or whatever from somebody. So he was able to, you know, kind of leverage companies like kind of like have to, what you have to do now right. to find sponsorship. You know, everything is a trade off, right? So that's how a lot of it works now. Yep. Yep. Huh. So what, uh, like, uh, it's still a, a big jump to go to, well, actually, no, let me, let me, let me uh, touch on, on one piece of information that to me seemed incredible is you raced in the last Can-Am race when you were 17 years old. That had to be a massive jump from a freaking Formula Ford to a Can-Am car at Mosport. Well, uh, we, live, we lived in Scarborough on the edge of, of Pickering. We lived at White's Road and Port Union area. So um, uh, we lived off Port Union in the 401, and I, mm -hmm. I, we, we lived uh, – and Horst Kroll's shop was just kind of down – down the road and my dad being a car guy and having a bunch of older cars you know and, and Horst had his Porsche Volkswagen shop that was right there off highway too my dad got to know him and obviously had race had race cars out front and formula cars and so one day I mean, I don't know what happened but I was racing I think I was racing F2000 it this it was it would have been an 80 I think it was 86 and uh my dad came home and and said uh, hey you're gonna you're gonna drive this can-am car of of, uh, of horse at the at the motorsport race i'm like okay so like we go out and i was racing three classes that weekend i was racing um i was racing the f2000 car and i was racing the rothman's porsche cup car and then the can-am car so i was doing three races in one in one day and I remember the first the first time I went out in the in the Can-Am car, first practice on Friday, it was pouring rain out, you know. And I was out in the F2000 car, and look, what's 130 horsepower, 150 horsepower, maybe. Yep. And then I get in this Can-Am car that was a frisbee, you know, big giant, you know, car with a 800 horsepower, you know, motor in it, and uh, literally this thing was like spinning the tires all the way up the back straightaway at Mosport, you know, yep. it was like frightening, yep. you know, so I, we qualified, you know, second practice was a little bit damp and I ended up qualifying on the pole for the race. And, uh, it was another, another funny story because then, then the third, third practice after qualifying was over Horst had, uh, had come to me and he said, okay, listen, kid, I was already on the pole, right? He was right. he was sec he was second, and he's like, "Okay, it's dry now. I want you to follow me around the track, and uh, I'm going to show you the race line." Like you've never been there before. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're going around, and I'm like right on his tail, following him, following him. We're going like quicker and quicker, and and then we come out of of. Uh, of uh, the end of the back straightaway, the, the big long sweeper, and then you come in into uh, seven, uh, nine, the, the nine, which would yep. be the the left hander, yep. and the guardrails were like literally right along the edge of the track. Then, and he he loses horse loses it, and hits the armco, and bounces back right in front of me, and I I end up hitting him. No, we hit nose to nose, and it like. <laughs> But it busted the uh, the whole front fiberglass, uh, you know, front end of my car. If, if you look back at, if, 
old pictures of when I was raced that car. The car was all painted, and I had this big white note, white nose on it because it got the nose got damaged. Well, the the tie rod on the car we hit kind of wheel to wheel, and it bent the tie rod on my on my car. And I remember I remember going into the garage. I had to like basically get out of the Can Am car and go right over and get in the F2000 car and do a race. And then I got in that car and I, I, won, I remember I won the race, went to the podium and then I got off the podium and I came back into the right there into the garage area, which was right next to the podium, right yep. behind, behind the, the pits. And I remember going into the garage where the Can-Am car was and the guy, one of horse mechanics was, had the tie, he had the tie rod, which was like, it was bent like this, right? He had it in a vice and he was like cranking on his vice to straighten it out. Right. Oh my it goodness! Wasn't, it wasn't like it wasn't just like this aluminum tie rod, and he's like got it in the vice, and he's like beating it with a hammer, and he's like trying to straighten it in the vice, you know. And I didn't have I didn't have a seat in the car, like there was no seat port or anything like that. I sat on a like a moving blanket in this car, you know. Jesus. So the, the the things like when I look back now, like at how fast that car was, you know, and you look back at the things you did then, and you you didn't even think of it then. You were like, man, if something would have went wrong and you're going 180 miles an hour in that thing on, on the back straightaway at most port and the tie rod finally oh. breaks, I mean, you could kill yourself easily. Yeah. I mean, uh, that like that, that's an, that's a time when, yeah, I can't believe they're first starters are straightening the tie rod. I'm, I'm sure it was a lightweight piece as well. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the things I think back on now that I did when, you know, back, back then, I mean, even some of the things I did with Penske when I was, when I joined Penske and they had me, they had me testing the stock block motor that we ran in Indianapolis. That was, uh, you know, we were literally going to Nazareth in like December, January, February, and like, you know, 25 degree weather and, you know, this five feet of snow on the track and they plow the track off and get jet dryers out there and, and dry the track and I would go around the track and, and do, you know, try to do a 500 mile test at Nazareth on a one mile track, you know, just to get miles on the motor. And it man, was, uh, you know, things, things they will not even allow you to do, to do now. Like you're not allowed to take an Indy car on the track until it's over 50 degrees ambient. And we were, uh, you know, when I was driving for Penske later on, I mean, like I said, I was out there testing, you know, running around Nazareth and like, 25 degree weather that has to be one of the biggest differences between racing back in the kind of the 80s and early 90s up until even the 2000s and now in all aspects of racing is the amount of testing time there used to be compared to now yeah i mean i back when i when i started with penske i was hired as a test driver um basically they told me okay you're going to be in a car uh pretty much two to three days a week and uh, we'll let you, you know, they, there was no guarantee that I was going to get to race for Penske. They said, we're going to you know, see how you go and then we'll decide. And uh, right away I was, I was quick. I remember my first test at mid Ohio. I was, I was quicker than Emerson and uh, they were like, wow. And uh, okay, we're going to race you at Michigan. And, but I literally like my first, you know, 91 to, I was probably driving 200 days a year testing 
you know, That's just insane. every, every week I was like, literally there'd be a race and like, we would stay, you know, we would, I would have to stay and test on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at the track we just raced at. And then they'd go to the next race. They had to, you know, back then Penske had a full separate test team, test cars, a whole separate crew, everything. And I, like literally, you know, some, sometimes I was racing on the weekend and then testing Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, and then going to the next race and, you know, practice was on, you know, Friday and wow. Um, big so, difference. I mean, big difference. And, and now it's, there's, virtually not much testing at all anymore right you know let me uh let me back you up because i i understand that your dad what did he refinance the house from what i understand to to give you a shot at indycar before you got that penske ride well after i after i won the lights championship you know we're kind of jumping around but i won the lights championship in 90 and 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 you know set all the records for race wins and had a great season I uh, had an offer to drive for True Sports uh, for team that was Budweiser team for Jim Truman. Okay. And I, I did a test at Mid Ohio, and the test went really well. Uh, I just won there in, in an Indy Lights car and had my first test there and went really quick in the test. And they, they were like, okay, we're going to try to get Budweiser to sign off on sponsoring you. And, and at that time, they, Scott Pruitt was, was injured at that time. And he had broken his legs really bad. So they uh, went to Budweiser and said, hey, we're going to sign this kid, Paul Tracy, that won the, the Lights Championship. And they actually went to Budweiser, had just been launched into Canada through, through Labatt's. And, and I don't even think I was 21 yet. So it just got shot down. They're like, I mean, he's not even 21. I was drinking age in Canada, but in, not in the States. Right. And... Uh, so it didn't fly uh, and I didn't get the ride. And then we had, we had nothing. Um, and then my dad decided that he, you know, he wanted to, me to run at Long Beach and uh, made a deal with Dale Coyne. And we lived down in, in Scarborough, down in the, in the Bluffs area in Guildwood. And my dad did a deal with, with Dale Coyne. And at the time I had, you know, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars for me to drive at, at Long Beach. And my dad basically refinanced the house and took some money out of the house. And, and my mom was super pissed. About it. <laughs> I, you know, another, another thing that, another thing that you, you always remember when you're a kid is my room was like next to my parents' room. And, and I could, you know, hear my mom yelling at my dad about it, that, you know, you're wasting their, their money and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, you know, we went to Long Beach and again, I had, that was my, I won there in an Indy lights car. Uh, I knew the track well, and, uh, I qualified really good. It was a year old car, uh, that, that I drove and I qualified well, I think I qualified 13th, 14th in a year old car. And then, you know, right away early on, I, I think a water pipe, one of the water pipes had cracked and I lost all the water in the motor and the motor went away and then that was it we that was it we, I didn't have anything else right and I remember sitting in the infield uh in the garage area you know kind of next to the aquarium with my a buddy of mine that raced I was racing light that I raced in lights with and he's like well what are you gonna do now I said I don't know I'm not gonna I don't, I don't have anything and one of Penske's uh managers came by and on a scooter and he stopped and he came back 
And he said to me, hey, Roger would like you to come to the hauler after the race to come see him. Okay. And I was like, I thought I was, did, I thought I'd done something wrong. You know, like, why would he want to see me? And uh, I went over after the race and saw, saw Penske and he didn't offer me anything. He just said, hey, what do you want to do with your career? I said, well, I want to win, win races. I want to go to the Indy 500. I'm, we're we're going to try to find some, a sponsor and try to do the Indy 500. And he told me, well, don't do that. Just wait for me to give you a call. Okay. And I'm like, I went, told my dad. And I mean, the phone never rang. You know, we, we continued to, to try to find sponsors to go to the Indy 500. We, we didn't find a sponsor, but, you know, this was in April. And, you know, it was May, the end of May, you know, the May starts. And, and uh, you know, the phone never rang the, the next week. Penske never called and said, hey, come meet me. And, you know, a, a month or two went by and there was no phone call. Wait, wait for a phone call from me. Don't do anything until I call you. Yeah. Right? Like, what is- so I'm like, what does that mean? Right. So. You know, and then one day we're sitting at home and we're watching qualifying at, at Indianapolis and we're at, I was sitting at home on the couch with my dad and we're watching it on TV and Rick Mears qualified on the pole in 91. And, uh, you know, the phone rings. This is, this is pre-cell phone. You know, the house phone rings and uh, it's one of Roger's, Roger was called and and he said, hey, I'm leaving Indianapolis. Uh, I'm going to my office in Detroit. I want you to meet me there at midnight. So this was, you know, Sunday night Yep. after qualifying at Indianapolis. And uh, we get in my dad's car and we drive to Detroit, you know, get there at midnight. And and uh, we, I, we walked into his office and there's, I remember there was Roger and Walter Zar- Walt Zarnicky and one of Roger's lawyers there. And, and, uh, he said, here's a five-year contract. Uh, we want you to do Paul to do all of all of our testing. Uh, he's going to be in the car all the time We're, we can't guarantee you any races, but if everything goes well, then we'll, uh, we'll give him some races. And they said, sign it, or we've got another guy waiting to sign it at a hotel and my dad was like my dad was like well can i read the contract and see what's see what it's about and they were like nope (laughs) hard sell we we signed signed the signed the contract yeah i mean i I found out later that the guy waiting at the hotel was was mike groff uh who had won the 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 indy lights championship in in 89 the year before me okay and was trying to get into indycar and he was a young american guy and quick guy, you know, drove Indy cars for a while. Him and his brother, Mike and Robbie Groff were both pretty quick guys. And, uh, so we signed the contract and, and that was it, you know, that, that next week, literally I was, I was testing in a Penske car. Right. Right. So you have some, some kind of success there. And then there's a little bit in, in between, I don't know exactly what happens, and you go and test an F1 car. Your ride is in question at Penske. Let me back up. I, I my uh, I started testing. Yeah. For Pen- I started testing for Penske, and everything was going great. I was going to Michigan all the time and doing, you know, 500 mile simulations and engine tests, and you know, doing really fast laps. And they say, okay, we're going to run you at Michigan in the Michigan 500. It's going to be your first race. Okay. Right. 
So we go to Michigan and they put me in a year old Penske car and, uh, I qualified like seventh. And, uh, I remember before the race, we had this team meeting and then Penske, Penske said to me, he said, look, I don't want you to pass anybody. I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to stay where you're at until 400 miles in. Right. So the race starts first lap. I'm running like seven and I get a big draft off of Scott Brayton and I'm coming off of turn four and I'm trying, I'm going to pass him. And I draft up behind him coming off the corner and I, I lost the rear of the car and I corrected it and it snapped back and I hit the wall head on and broke my leg in my Jeez. first race and destroyed the car. I wrote the car off in my first race. <laughs> <laughs> so in that, in, in your mind, were you like, it's, it's over. I fucked up. Yeah. I think I'm done. They're, they're going to fire me. It's over. Right. Yeah. My first, they told me not to pass anybody and don't do anything for 400 miles. And I'm trying to pass a guy for sixth place on the first lap and break my leg and destroy the car. And, uh, I'm go to the hospital and, uh, nobody from the team shows up, but just my mom and my dad are there and I broke my leg, I broke my tibia and, uh, had to get surgery on it and, and put it, get a rod put in it. And, uh, I remember. I had surgery the next day on Monday and I remember being in the, you know, the, the, uh, the hospital in the hospital bed and Dr. Trammell was the guy that, uh, operated on my leg. So I'm in there with him and, and, uh, the hospital phone rings and it was, it was Roger on the phone and he's on the phone and he, he's talking to Trammell. And he says to Trammell, how, you know, he says, oh, he should be, you know, it's probably about five weeks. He can have the cast off, but he'll be on crutches. And, you know, and he said, you know, I remember he said, well, he can start therapy right away. Like we have a therapy center that is nearby my house and he can go there. So what happened was basically Roger said, they said, I, if everything went well, I could drive, probably drive a car in five to six weeks. And. So I, Roger said, look, you're going to go to this physical therapy place and you're going to work out every day and then get yourself ready to drive. And as soon as Trammell says you can drive, you're going to start testing again. So literally I spent five weeks living at Dr. Trammell's house and he would drop me off at this physical therapy place. And I would like, you know, do upper body workouts and I couldn't do anything with my leg. And, uh, Five weeks goes by and they, they take the cast off my leg. You know, I've still got a rod in my leg and screws in my knee and screws in my ankle. And, you know, I've got like, I'm on crutches still. And then I, they say, okay, we're going to go test. And I go, I go to test and they take me back to Michigan. And, and there's this giant blue mark on the wall where I hit the wall and turned four. And that was my first test. And they said, okay, you got to, you got to finish 500 miles. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't finish. Wow. Yeah, wow. so Get I was back I was horse. literally crapping myself. Like I was so scared when I went out and and then you know it took you know twenty or thirty laps for me to get brave enough to go flat out again and and then then that was it. We um ninety one 
Rick at the, so yeah, so I did some more races in 91. Uh, later on in the year, they just had me testing through the summer. Um, Cause that race was in August when I broke my leg. And then in the fall that I did, uh, I did Nazareth and, and Laguna Secas that year. So, and I finished, I finished, uh, I actually beat Rick and Emerson at Nazareth in my second race. I finished like sixth or seventh. I can't remember exactly where, but I had a really good run and, and beat Rick and Emerson. And, and I had a good run at Laguna. And how did, sorry, how did, how did you feel like in the, in the garage there, did you feel like you belong there? Did you have the confidence or was, did you have a little bit of imposter syndrome or were you just kind of looking at the charts? Like, how did you really feel getting into that IndyCar garage? I mean, I didn't really, I didn't think that I really fit in because I was just this young kid. And at that time in IndyCars, there was no young kids. There was like, I mean, it was guys like Mario Andretti and Emerson Fittipaldi and Danny Sullivan and Rick Mears and AJ Foyd. And there was all these like guys in their, you know, forties, you know, and they were all like these guys that have been around forever and done formula one. And, and I'm like this 21 year old kid in there. Like I didn't fit in with anybody. Right. So, yeah. you know, these guys were like huge, gigantic stars in racing. And then I'm just this kid that, you know, Michael Andretti and Alan Jr. And, you know, all these huge names, you know? Yep. But I was fast. I mean, I was right, right there, right there with them all. And then 92, uh, I start, I was, you know, I still only had, a, I was only going to do a partial schedule of a handful of races. Um, and, uh, started out at Phoenix was my first race, had a good run at Phoenix. Um, didn't race long beach and then, uh, went to Indy and had a, I crashed in practice at Indy and leaving the pits and they, everybody got mad at me about that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, had an okay race going in 92 at Indy. I was in the mix with Scott Goodyear and, and, you know, I was running with Scott Goodyear and Alancer Jr. who ended up winning the race, but my engine blew. But in that race, uh, Rick, Rick had crashed in practice. Rick Mears crashed and broke his wrist in practice. And uh, he only came back and did one more race after that. So uh, he had, I basically filled in in 92 after Indy, I filled in. Uh, I got moved up into his car, into the Marlboro car. The, the, that, that year car, I was driving a year old car still. And then I started filling in for Rick. And that's when things really, really lit up. My first race after Indy was Detroit. And I qualified up on the fr front row with Michael Andretti. And Michael Andretti and I had battled back and forth. And, you know, I finished third at Detroit. Uh, to Bobby Rahal one and Michael and I were, were banging wheels at, at Detroit and he and you know, Bobby got by both of us because we were busy bouncing off of each other and you know Toronto and uh, scored a bunch of podiums uh, in 92 but no no wins in 92 and then 93 it was my first year full season and uh, won five races in, in 93 and finished third in the championship right right so <clears throat> and i don't have the timeline in front of me there when does that formula one test happen and why are you kind of looking outside of the penske deal there well in night i had this five-year contract and, and, and in this contract i got uh, you know i wasn't making very much money my contract was literally the first year was twenty five thousand dollars i got paid 
The second year was 50, 75, 100, 125. And uh, by year three, I was 93. I'd won five races and scored, you know, 10, podium, 10 podiums and finished third in the championship. And I was racing against Nigel Mansell, who was making like $5 million a year. Michael Andretti was making $5 million a year. Alex Jr. was – all these guys were making huge, huge money. Right. Tobacco was involved then, and there was, was huge money flying around. And here I am. I'm making $75,000 a year. <laughs> Penske's got a cheap driver. Right? So <laughs> my dad went back to, to Roger at, at, in, at the end of the 93 season, and he said uh, – Hey, uh, Paul's doing really well. You know, would you think he'd get a raise? And Roger was like, no, you know, you guys, you guys signed the contract. So, you know, that's, that's the deal. You, you signed the deal. We, that's our deal. My dad was like, okay, so 94 happens. And I won more races in 94, finished third in the championship again in, in 94 and won three or four races that year. And, it was only making like a hundred grand that year. Right. And uh, there was some issues with the tobacco laws uh, in the United States. And, you know, so Roger was going to cut back from three to two cars mm. and he, he wanted me, he wanted me to drive, go and drive for Gary Vettenhausen and go in, back in a year old car. And until uh, Emerson retired. So Emerson had one or two more years left on his contract. And then after Emerson retired, I would, he would said, I would, he would bring me back. And, and my dad read through the contract and found this clause in there that said that, you know, that Roger couldn't assign me to drive for anybody else without our approval. So we had to give approval and sign off on it. And my dad went back to Roger and said, no, we're not doing that deal. And Roger's like, what are you talking about? You know, you're under right. contract. And my dad said, well, you got this clause in the contract that says, you know, that uh, you can't tell Paul he, he, he can, has to drive for somebody else without us approving it. And, and my dad said, you signed the contract. Ah. So I had, I had an offer to, <clears throat> at that time to go to Formula One. And I had an offer to go to drive for Newman Haas for, for Budweiser. Okay. And uh, I went and did the test in Formula One, and I, I did really well. Uh, but Flavio Briatore was running the team at that time, and and uh, I got offered a contract to go to be Schumacher's teammate, but it just it wasn't a good contract. I mean, it was it was again it was a contract where I had to sign a management contract to Briatore, and he was going to take most of all the money that I was going to make. And, you know, there was no guarantee that I was going to drive, you know, there was, it was all very vague and, you know, right. there was this big management contract involved where I had to give, you know, you know, 70% of my income to Briatore for life. <laughs> so my dad, you know, it was a contract you would, you would never sign. Right? right. And then I had this, I had this offer from Paul Newman and Carl Haas to drive for them a one year deal for a million and a half dollars. Right. So, there. yeah. So I signed, I signed with them and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm still only like 23 or four years old. Now I'm going to get, you know, winning lots of races and I'm going to get the opportunity to go, to go to formula one at some later on. And I wanted to win an IndyCar championship and, and win more races. And so I went to Newman Haas and I won a couple races for them 
And that in 95, that was 95. Uh, that year, Penske really struggled in 95. And uh, they didn't qualify at the Indy 500. Uh, and I was really quick at the Indy 500. I qualified like 232 or something like that. And, you know, and they didn't make the field. And I I'd actually ran, ran into, walk, you know, ran into Roger in the pit lane, walking down the pit lane. And uh, after they didn't make the field and he said, uh, Hey, give me a call. Give me a call after the race. I want you to come to my office. And uh, so after the race was over, I went to Detroit to meet, meet with Roger. And he said, I need you to come back and drive for me next year. How long is your contract? I said, well, I only have a one year contract. And he said, well, I want you to come back. And he said, what do you want to drive? I said, I don't, I want the same. I want the same as what the other guys get. Yep. I want this. I want the same money as Al Jr. And I'd sign, I signed a contract to drive for Roger for like, I signed a five-year contract to drive for him for three and a half million dollars a year for five years back then. Right. Right. Good money. Good money. Huh? Huh? So did you have, I didn't, I didn't, la- I, I didn't, I didn't last all the way through the contract though. I got fired halfway through it. Right. We'll get to that in one sec, but, but to go back to your kind of F1 Indy car, and I mean, it wasn't really a dilemma because of the contracts, but I, I can imagine growing up racing go-karts that the, the end goal is always formula one. Uh, was that the case for you that you wanted yeah. to be an F1? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was, but it was, but it wasn't, you know, yeah. It was, it was, but it wasn't. I just, I really just wanted to win races and, uh, I just, the F1 opportunity just never really came around again. I like, I went back to Penske in 96 and, uh, the car wasn't really, wasn't really that good. And I, you know, kind of struggled with it. I didn't win any races in 96. And then in 97, I had a pretty decent season. I won three races in 97 and finished third in the championship. Uh, the car was really, really, really good on ovals. It was a really good oval car, but on, on road courses, when you had to put softer springs in the car and raise the car up off the ground, the, the underwing didn't work very well in road course configuration. And I really struggled. We really struggled with it in 97. And, and uh, you know, I remember one time we were, test, we were testing at this track in Michigan at this place called uh, Gingerman. I've been to Gingerman. Yeah, little little small track in 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 Michigan and real tight and twisty and we were there for 3 days testing tires and tr- trying different underwings and and doing all this stuff and and uh just throwing tires at it, and throwing tires at it, and throwing tires at it. And uh you know, two and a half days into this test, I remember like we you know, this white semi truck pulls into to the track and it was one of Ray Hall's trucks and trailers and uh, out rolls this brand new red Reynard. You know, they were running Goodyear tires at the time and we were on Goodyear's and it had a Mercedes motor and it was a Reynard with a Mercedes with Goodyear's. And, uh, you know, I'd already been going around Gingerman for two days and uh, out rolls this Reynard and they, they roll it in our tent. And, and the team manager says, okay, we're going we're to pour a seat in this thing real quick. We're just going to make a quick seat and you're going to drive this in the afternoon. We're going to evaluate it. I'm like, okay. Yep. So, uh, I jump, jump in it, never driven one before. And I go out, do an installation lap. I come in 
my first run out first five laps, like in three laps, I go, I go like three tenths quicker than I've done in the Penske in two and a half days, you know? And, you know, you know, after one set of tires, I'm like, I'm like six or seven tenths up on my quick time in the Penske, you know? Wow. And then, uh, you know, we finished the day off. They, they roll out a set of Firestones and fire that was Firestones. You know, they were pretty new to IndyCar and they were, you know, Goodyear's were, weren't the tire to have. That was the Firestones were the right. tire to have. And we throw on these set of Firestones at the end of the day. And I literally, I go like, you know, 1.3 seconds quicker than, than I'd been in the Penske in two and a half days. And I've only done like 20 laps in this car. Wow. Right. So we all leave there like, wow, holy shit. Right. So we finish off the rest of the year in 97 and struggled and on the road, you know, it was all road courses. And I remember at Laguna Seca, I, I got, after the race was over, I finished third in the championship and Roger called me to the, to the hospitality, like the, his office in the hospitality and it was kind of weird because I walked in and there was like Roger and a couple team managers and Roger's lawyer, this guy named uh, Larry Bloom. I remember him specifically. And uh, they had me come in and they're like, uh, we're going to start testing pretty soon. What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do next year? I said, well, I said, I would get that Reynard with those Firestones and with our motors, we we kick ass. Right. Right. You know, I didn't think about the ramifications of contracts or Penske cars, 500 employees that work for Roger. I wasn't even thinking. That. I was only thinking of myself and thinking of, you know, yeah, let's we... get that Reinhardt. Let's get that Reinhardt. Right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. They're like, okay. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll call you in a week and uh, to test. So a week goes by and I get a call from my manager and he says, Hey, I got this call from, from Roger. He's uh, my manager lived in San Diego and I was living in Phoenix at the time. He says, uh, Roger called me. He's like, he wants to have lunch with you and I and a sponsor, a potential sponsor. And can you fly over here on the next flight on Southwest airlines? I said, yeah. I said, okay. And he goes, it sounds, it sounds kind of weird to me, but just get on the next flight. So I fly over to San Diego. My manager picks me up at the airport. We go to this hotel right by the, right by the airport. And we, you know, they tell us to come up to the suite. And literally I walked in the suite and there's only, there's one guy there. There's one of Roger's lawyers and he, he hands me a termination sheet and says, uh, we're letting you go. And my manager was like, well, we got it. We have a con, we have, you know, three more years left on our contract. And he's like, well, Rob, Paul says he doesn't want to drive our car. And it's, it's, it's in our best interest that you, you guys just, he wants a Reynard with Firestones. You should go find somebody with a Reynard and Firestones. We've got, you know, 500 employees at Penske cars that are built our new car. and We have a contract with Goodyear and Paul doesn't want to drive that. So he can go drive something else. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we, I was like, shit, now what do I do? Right. So immediately. Wow. And is that like, are you, that's at the beginning of the season or when did they, when did the season was over? This was like a week after the season was over. And, uh, there was no, I mean, everybody had signed new contracts for, for 98. There was no rides available. Right. You know, and I'm now I'm fired and there's nothing out there. 
So I literally, we, we leave the, leave the hotel and we, I start calling people because I'd had some interest from Forsyth to come join them because players wanted to me to drive for them. But I was under, I had a long-term contract and told them I wasn't available. So I called Jerry Forsyth and he was like, ah, oh, I just, I just signed uh, Pat Carpentier to be Greg Moore's teammate. I, I just signed him yesterday. I don't oh. have a spot for you. And then I called Barry Green and Barry Green was like, I don't have a second car, but I was only going to run Dario Franchitti, but let me make a couple phone calls. And, and, you know, within 24 hours, a cool, mm-hmm. had a cool cigarettes had agreed to fund a second car for me to drive, drive for them. The, the guy who actually ran cool cigarettes was a, a Canadian guy named Bob Bexon, who actually had worked for players, players and cool were this, uh, two different brands under the same company. They were like owned by, uh, Imperial tobacco and right. British American tobacco. So it all kind of fell under the same umbrella. And so the guy who ran cool at the time was, was Canadian and he jumped on, on getting me to join team cool green, but it, it came, it came with a massive, a massive haircut in terms of salary. Yeah. I basically went from making three and a half million dollars a year, had a contract to, to like a million five I, I signed for, but I was with cool during that time. I think I was, was there for, for six years with, with them and, you know, won, won a bunch of races with them and factored in the championship a couple times, but never, never was really able to put it, put it all together right. with them. Right. During some of those years, if I'm not mistaken, like, you know, you're getting, and, and I'm sure it was kind of a little bit later on too, obviously with Tagliani and, and Seb and stuff, but you, you really seem to have this kind of bone to pick with all the French guys and you're kind of getting into it with them. You, you, were you banned from the first race of the 99 season? You weren't allowed to run that race? Yeah, I had to gotten into an accident in 90. No, it was the second, second year that I was at cool. The first year I really struggled and I got, I finally got this Reynard Firestones and now I had a Honda and I, for whatever reason, I just, I just couldn't get on the same page with my, with my engineer. Uh, the guy was a super nice guy and I've worked with him a couple times throughout my career. And you know, it's not that I don't, like the guy, I think he's a great guy, but for whatever reason, him and I just just didn't click mm. engineering wise. And so, my first year with Cool, I really struggled, and then I got into an accident with with Michael at Surfers Paradise, and I ended up getting a penalty. They made me sit out the first year for the first race of the '99 season. But you know, it, but but coming back to the thing with Frank with the French, I I, I had I had run-ins with. Richard Spinard and I had run-ins with Claude Bourbonnet and I remember one time we got disqualified from the Canadian Grand Prix in F2000. I won the race and they disqualified me because I had contact with Claude and the French, French guys and me just never, never got along very, very well. <laughs> but, um, and it's not that I don't like Seb now. Seb and I get along, get along pretty well now. Tag and I get along, get along really well you know, tags, tags, a maniac, you know, you race with him now, you know, he's yeah. like, he's a, lun- he's a complete lunatic. Yeah. And he always, he always has been, but he's, you know, I, I get along with him fine. Yeah, no, I race against tag. I hope he sees this. The guy's an absolute weapon out there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how he does in the. I know he's been racing the, the cast car for a long time. I don't I don't know what his results are like, but he seems to always run at the front. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he's definitely still got it, and I I think he works super hard at it. You know. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I mean, I have a lot. I have. A, I mean, he's he's nuts, but I have a lot of respect for for Tag because, I mean, he works his ass off to to go racing. Like he's constantly working it and finding sponsors and making deals happen. And, you know, he was a guy, I mean, he had a lot of potential in the beginning of his career. You know, he had the players deal and, and it just never came together for him. And then he always had to scratch and claw and fight and find sponsors and just, just scratching and clawing all the time. And he always seemed to put something together. So, I, I mean, he, he really works, his, works hard to to keep his racing going it's, he's a lot more he's a lot more motivated than me that's for sure that to, at finding sponsors and finding people to help him he's he's done a really good job yeah no and and uh, and for sure for sure and and you can appreciate too all those guys out of quebec uh you know they get a lot of a uh, lot of support from those those companies and and everyone in quebec there you know fans and everything it is a different deal than being in ontario yeah, I mean, I, that's the thing that's frustrating for me that I see from Canadian motorsports is like there's always been a lot of people that are willing to support drivers out of Quebec, uh, you know, and, and either French businessmen or, you know, uh, companies. But it, it, like the Ontario and Western Canada scene, there's really there's really like no corporate backing out of the rest of Canada for, for anybody. It's just anybody that seems to get any type of backing that seems to be the French Canadian guys. They just have a lot of connections in Quebec and a lot of businessmen help them. And it's, but coming out of Canada, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to, to try to make it. Cause there's, you know, once the players deal kind of went away, there was, there was really no corporate structure to help young drivers out of Canada. So it makes it tough. Yep. Yep. So to jump back to that, uh, you know, your kind of run-ins with, the, with the French guys, uh, explain to me or tell me the kind of story that led to you being, you know, Captain Quebec there coming out with the flag draped around your, you know, your back and, and the mask on. And I guess you were booed at the intros. Yeah. I mean, I'd been getting into it for a couple of years already with Bourdais and him and I just really didn't like each other in general. And, uh, you know, then the week before, Two weeks before we went to Montreal, I, I, you know, I screwed up and I went down the runoff at, at St. Saint, Saint San Jose and I spun the car around in there and I was like, I saw a tag, a, there was this set of train tracks and it was, had a rise in it and I just saw him coming over and I was like, oh, I can make it out and then I dropped the clutch and then once I was committed to going out, I was like, shit, I'm not going to fucking make it out. Like we're going to collide and, yeah. but it's too late now. I, I, if I stop, he's T-boning me in, in, you know, or I got to keep going. And, uh, so it was, I pulled out in front of him and, you know, wiped out, took off his front wing and, you know, smashed my car. But I mean, it could have been a lot worse accident than, than it was by the stop, but it was, it was all my fault. And he was super mad and we got into it and he was like, you know, pushing and shoving on me and, you know, I ended up throwing him on the ground. <laughs> so anyway, the next weekend we go to, to, to Denver and I was leading the race and I had a fuel pickup problem 
and Bourdais caught me with a lap to go within sight of the checkered and dive bombed me into the last corner. And I was like, I'm not having it. I'm, I'm either wrecking or winning this race and took him out. And, uh, my teammate ended up winning the race. AJ Almendinger won. And, uh, so then we come to Montreal and, uh, and the press was all over me. You know, he, the French Canadian press was just hated me. They, you know, they already didn't like me in La Presse because I, years ago I'd gotten into it with Spinard and Bourdais all the time. So they already didn't like me, you know, and it was our first time. I think it was our first time, first or second time back to Montreal, uh, racing Indy cars. And so I get off, literally I get off the plane to Montreal and there's like, I come out of customs and there's like media waiting for me and, you know, they're chasing me around all over the place and I get to the track and the fans are booing me and, you know, hissing at me. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to hide from everybody or play? I just decided I was going to, my buddy was downtown and like found this little shop and saw, saw this mask. And he's like, thought it was funny. He's like, I'll put this on it. Like it matched my uniform. And I, we just did it. I did it as a joke just to be, just to be funny, you know, just to laugh it off. And it, it actually made the fans actually, you know, they love wrestling in Quebec. So yeah. it actually, they actually kind of liked it in the end. And I ended up finishing second in the race and, you know, it kind of made it, made a little thing of my personality, you know? Yep. Yep. Cause I mean, that is, that is an iconic image now associated with you. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So I still, right. I still have, I still have the mask. Actually the mask that I, I had, I, it, it, it was an actual real famous Mexican wrestler. It was like a wrestling family. It was like a guy from the fifties whose name was, uh, um, blue demon. And it was okay. his dad. who was a wrestler and his son and his grandson. So, uh, the grandson saw it on, on, on uh, TV in Mexico because the races were playing in Mexico and actually sent me one of his real masks with a, with his signature on it, which was kind of cool. Wow. That is really cool. That's cool. Huh? So you're uh, right around that time. You're uh, you're mountain biking a lot, from what I understand, and you're riding bicycles a lot. And are you you're pretty competitive on a bike during that time? You're racing downhill. Yeah, I was. I, I always liked mountain biking, and uh, you know, then I started. You know, during the you know towards the middle of my career, end of my career, I always enjoyed riding bicycles, and I I got into riding ten speed bikes, and I used to ride with a group of guys when I lived in Vegas help sponsor these guys that these, this master's team. And I just enjoyed it. I liked, you know, I liked lifting weights too, but I actually got into cycling quite a bit just to keep, to keep fit. Uh, I haven't strapped my leg over a bike in, in years, but I do, I do ride the Peloton Peloton bike every day. But I, I, that was one of the things that I did. I really didn't need to lift weights or do, do any type of upper body work because I've always been, bigger anyway and strong enough I, I always had to like concentrate on staying lean and keeping my weight down so uh, you know cycling was the biggest thing for me because I, I didn't really like running I wasn't a good runner and uh, I'm not a particularly great swimmer so cycling was something that I just enjoyed doing all the time and I would do it every day right yeah no it's something and it's something you can just do all day or for a number of hours compared to swimming and running that's just absolute torture uh so i saw i saw that uh i was you had like a yeti bike with like penske shocks on it or something something trick like that i had a, i met uh, you know 
during the early nineties, I was really into mountain biking in Ontario and I would go ride around in Toronto and the Rouge and down, there was some trails downtown that I would ride in along, along the river. And I used to do that every day and I was really into bikes and, and uh, Yeti was like the bike that, that was, they were like the coolest hand built bike in the, in the nineties. And I, I, you know, called this, called this company, um, you know, they were in Colorado and I called the company and I wanted to order a bike and they were all built to order deal. And I called up there and then I guy answers the phone and, and, uh, I ordered the bike and he's taking my information and he's, what size are you? And I'm like a 17 and 17 frame. And, and he's like, okay, what's your name? I said, it's Paul Tracy. He's like, the, the driver, Paul Tracy. And I said, I said, yeah, he goes, oh my, he goes, I'm a huge fan of yours. And, and he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bike. So he, he ended up turning out to being a, a great long time friend of mine, this guy named John Parker, who was the original founder of Yeti bikes. And he would just give me bikes to use. And then I, you know, once the, you know, downhill started getting big in, uh, you know, the, it was cross country bikes and then suspension bikes started happening, front forks, full suspension bikes. And then I, when I was driving for Penske, then I connected this guy, John Parker, with Penske Shocks. The guy who ran Penske Shocks at the time was a guy named Jeff Ryan. And he was he was another guy. He was into motocross. Uh, he built all the race car shocks, but he was like a motocross nut. And uh, he, he wanted to get you know, he saw opportunity. To, to do something with them and started making some forks for some prototype forks for them that I don't know if they worked or not. And, but, uh, they were sure, they were sure pretty cool looking. Hmm. No, that's a cool deal. It's actually funny. I, uh, I know the guy Yeti does Yeti bikes does a podcast and I actually know the guy who does the podcast there should almost connect you for, for an episode of, uh, the early days. Yeah. There was a guy that used, to follow me on Facebook that had a, a historical Yeti, you know, like a group or something. And I, I still, I actually still have one of my Yetis hanging, one of my Yeti bikes. I still have hanging on my garage wall. I have a, I have a, uh, like a cross country bike with like a, like a small, it's like a two and a half inch travel rear air shock. And, uh, so I still, ha I actually still have one of my, one of my bikes. I've had the bike for literally, I think I've had it almost 30 years now. Wow. That, that's pretty cool. So the, the early 2000s, uh, I remember like another kind of side project you had going on and explain to me how it all came about was the PTK, the, the go-kart, the Paul Tracy cart. How did, how did that come about? Because I remember being pretty young and seeing Wiccans drive one of those carts. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know Robbie drove, drove one of my carts. That's, that's a surprise because I thought they were Burrell guys, but. I believe he, uh, when he was uh, at Hamilton, when, uh, yeah, I think he raced uh, one of your carts in uh, an 80, shifter cart. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that, but, uh, you know, I was, uh, again, I was, uh, at the time I was living in Vegas and I was going out to the go-kart track all the time at the local track there, uh, just for practice. And, um, I just was approached by another guy that I knew from karting for a long time it was a guy out of california and uh he said hey why don't we uh you know why don't we, why don't you start your own line i like well i'm like well how do you do that he goes well i'll just call call up one of the manufacturers in italy and and have them you know you pick out one of their chassis that they're not using that's homologated and 
you know, they'll paint it whatever color you want and, uh, and uh, brand it with your stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, how many do we got to buy? Or, you know, he goes, you know, so we set up a distributorship. We started out, this company started out, I think we, the very first PTK carts were, uh, I believe they were made by Atomic, maybe, yep. Makes back sense. in the yep. day. Yeah, and then uh, I wasn't very happy with how they worked, and they could never deliver enough carts. And, and then we ended up doing a deal with, uh, with CRG, with Danilo Rossi. And uh, that that was a really good collaboration. That was with the original first PTK carts um, that were silver and black, and we ran those for for quite a, quite a few years. They worked well. And then in the final the final couple of years, we ended up doing doing a deal with Tony Cart and uh, used one of used one of their chassis, and it was painted red, and everything was was red and white. But um, it all kind of it all kind of fizzled out towards the end of my career. Uh, um, you know, I was kind of handed it off to the guy that was running my go-kart team. And, uh, there was a lot, you know, you know how go-karting is cause you were, there was, everything was so fractured in the United States. You had Scusa, you had this, that, all these different leagues fighting with each other. And there was no real, you know, it was all very, you know, all over the place. And, you know, and, and in go-karting, most everybody that's quick doesn't want to pay for their equipment. You got to, you know, you got to give away a lot of stuff. So the, I mean, I had a go-kart line, but it never, it never really made any money because to sell carts, you have to win races and to win races, you have to get the best drivers and the, all those guys, their dads want their stuff for free, you know, so it ends up being pretty, pretty costly. But it, it for me, for me, it was like giving back to, to the sport. And, you know, I helped out a lot of young a lot of young guys that were racing go-karts then like AJ Almadanger drove for me. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of guys that drove, you know, I guess Robert Wickens drove one of my carts. And yep. you know, there was a, a ton of, ton of kids that drove, drove my carts at that time that I would give stuff to that, you know, would, would, would help their career. So it was, it was really, it wasn't really so much for me about make, trying to make a bunch of money, it, but it was just kind of giving back into the sport, you know? Right, right. Would you say that you kind of discovered Almendinger or at least vouched for him kind of along the way, helping his helping his career? Well, we we went to a test. We were I, we were testing, and I was running this uh, this kid named Curtis Cooksey, who's a he's still a car, he's still in the carding industry now. He's got a a shop in Vegas. He's um, so we were we were testing at this track in in Northern California, up around Sacramento, and. and uh, we went out there and because there was a Scusa race up there and we went there to test. And uh, my guy that ran the team was, his name was Tim Pappas. And he, he called me on the phone. He's like, Hey, there's this kid out here and he's in some old beat up cart in his back of this crappy pickup truck with his dad. And I mean, this kid is flying. He's so fast. Can, can we like, you know, get him on the team and give him some equipment? I'm like, yeah, okay, no problem. So, you know, he, he comes to Vegas and we, you know, he's, uh, AJ was like 14 or 14 or 15 at the time. And uh, we teamed him with uh, him and Matt Jaskell. I don't know if you remember Matt Jaskell. I know the he, name. He races sure. a little bit. Of, yeah, he, he races a little bit of NASCAR right now. And um, so, you know, that was, that was the start for AJ. We got <laughs> him in a cart, he ran at the Super Nationals. Him and Scott Speed were like the two fastest dudes and 
in Scusa at that time, and AJ was driving for me. And then as when AJ turned 16, I uh, I helped him. He wasn't even on the on the radar of of Skip Barber, and I got him into the Skip Barber shoot off or shootout thing that they had at Sebring. And uh, he went down there and, and uh, literally just sm- blew everybody's doors off and, and got the he got the scholarship and then ultimately you know first year went out and and, and won the 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 Barber Dodge Championship in his first year and then his then his career took off from there. Yep. And then you know obviously ran ran good in in uh, Atlantics and then got to got to Indy cars. And uh, and really struggled in Indy cars. Like his first year and a half, he was driving for Carl Russo, and and he had uh, Justin Wilson was his teammate. And Justin Wilson was pretty quick. He was F1 driver, that drove for Jaguar, uh, super quick guy. Uh, and AJ was just didn't have the didn't have the measure of him, and was getting really frustrated. And he ultimately ended up getting getting fired from from Roosport. And and uh, Forsyth, Jerry Forsyth, I was driving for Forsyth at the time, came to me and he's like, "Hey, what, is this kid good?" I said, "Yeah, he's really good. He's just I just don't think he's in the right environment." And he said, "Okay, well, I'm going to bring him in as your teammate." And I said, "I didn't I didn't think I was going to have any trouble beating him." And uh, uh, I said, "Okay, yeah, bring him into the team." And and uh, he blew my fucking doors off. Uh, you know, he won, he he came in the team and won his first race and won six races and kicked my ass. You know, and I was like, "Shit, that was a bad decision." May have helped him a little bit too much. Yeah. So then he then he ended up. Uh, you know, Jerry Forsyth wanted to sign him to a contract, and and he I don't know he he. A, you know, there's different different stories, but AJ got an offer to go NASCAR and got this Red Bull program, and he he basically dumped dumped the IndyCar opportunity and went went NASCAR. And, and I mean, you saw it. I mean, his first his first few years in NASCAR, he really really struggled in, in NASCARs. It, and it's now he's one of the top guys in NASCAR. Like he's a beast in the NASCAR now. Like he can he can win on road courses and ovals and. Daytona and super speedways. He's, he's really good at it, but it took him, it took him a long, long time to, to get really good at it. I mean, that's, that's my impression of, and I I've say this all the time. I don't care who you are. Switching disciplines is damn hard, you know, and, and especially those NASCARs take a long time to kind of adapt to like, you have to be so patient. You can't just drive it harder, you know? Yeah, you can't you can't drive it hard. You have to. I mean, that's the hardest thing that I have with SRX is that, you know, I I, I practice now like at our local track that I'm a partner in. We have a, tr- a country club track here, and I have an LMP3 car that I that I use for to stay in driving shape and drive. And I mean, not the kind of car that I want to go jump in an SRX car, which is basically a a, a cross between a TA2 car and a late model, a late modified at with a late modified bias ply Goodyear tire on it and, yep. and really small and really small brakes. So, you know, every time I tell myself don't overdrive the car, I'm literally trying so hard in that SRX car to not overdrive the car and, and underdrive the tire, but I'm still not doing, doing it well enough. You know, like guy, like, I, I can't even explain to you how how smooth 
Tony Stewart and Bobby Labonte are. Like I, like, I think I'm being smooth in the car, and then I watch my in-car, and I'm, I'm like this. And those guys, those guys are just like, they're like this, you know. They don't move the steering wheel because all it does is piss the tires off all the time. And I'm like, think I'm being smooth, but I mean, not even on the same level as, as a Tony Stewart, you yeah. know, and it's, and it's hard, it's hard to teach yourself to do that because when you drive open wheel cars and you drive formula cars, and sports cars, you have to react to everything that the car is doing or else it'll get away from you. When you're, when you're driving on a car, when you're driving a car with a, with a, a short, you know, sidewall tire, you have to react to everything that the tire is doing. But when you have a tire with it, that's a big balloon and a 15 inch rim. I mean, it's just the tires moving around all over the place. And the more you react to that, the more you're pissing off the tire and just putting heat into it. And I, you know, I'm like, it's, you know, the thing, the thing about it with like Tony, he's just like, he's so incredibly smooth. I just, and I'm trying to figure out how to do that, but it just, it takes time. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. When you, uh, cause you did a couple, uh, truck, truck races and, and Bush races back in the day. How did, is that what, what kind of went on? Did you feel like you were overdriving it or, um, you know, was that a, was that something you were looking to do and make that jump? I was coming towards the end of my career and I was, you know, approaching, approaching 40. And, and I said to, you know, I, you know, there was, there was a lot of interest in 06, 07. I was still winning or 05, 06, I was still winning a lot of IndyCar races. And I was getting, you know, I was getting in my upper 30s. And and I had, a, a, you know, some interest from NASCAR to do that. And and I went to Forsyth and I said, hey, I've, you know, Richard Childress wants me to come test his car. And, you know, Kevin Harvick's going to maybe leave and go somewhere else. And he's like, well, why don't you go try it first before you decide to do it? You might not like it. And I went and tried it. And I was like, eh, it's, I mean, it's okay. And, and, and ultimately I didn't, I didn't get the deal that I got an offer to go to Childress racing, but you know, I was at that time I was getting, I was racing like 15 or 16 champ car races a year for Forsyth. And I had no sponsor commitments. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to test that much. And I was getting paid a huge amount of money. And then I had an, I had an offer to go into NASCAR and it was like, okay, now I'm going to do, do 40 races and I'm going to have to do all these sponsor appearances every week and trade shows. And I was, they were going to pay me like a third of what, you know, it was five times the amount of work for a third of the amount of money as a, as a base, you know, but there was, there was prize money involved and merchandise, but you know, that depends if you finish well and, and if your merchandise is going to sell. But, you know, I was like looking at these two deals, right? Okay. I'm going to make you know, $4 million to do 15 races and not have to do anything else. Or I'm going to, you know, I'm getting offered a million dollars to do 40 races and work five times as much. And I'm like, you know what I'm, what I, I decided what I'm going to do is I, I decided I'm going to stay in IndyCar another, I had a couple more years on my contract and I'll just kind of put my toe in the water of NASCAR. And I, I did some, at the time it was nationwide. I, I I don't even know what it was called then. It was nationwide or I did a deal with a smaller team and got some money together and, and it wasn't a very good team. And, and I just, there's a big difference in NASCAR between the top teams and the middle teams and the lower teams. And 
at that the car the team I was driving for when I did the the nationwide races was just a small little team and they would buy used cars from from DEI and I just uh I just didn't run very well in it you know and so I was like I just didn't didn't pursue it after that yeah no I always you know it's a I don't think people realize how how much of a season that NASCAR deal is you know how how much you were on the road how much you're really sacrificing to go you know be a cup driver. Yeah, I mean, it's, those guys are, I mean, you see guys now, they're, you know, those guys are now retiring in their late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, the NASCAR drivers used to drive well into their 50s. So the, the schedule of that is just a, is just a, a huge grind. And, you know, as my career progressed on, then, you know, 07, the Champ Car Series started falling apart and, they, they merged with the IRL in 08. And then after that, when I had a, a contract with, with Forsyth and uh, I wanted to finish my career with Forsyth and then he decided he was going to quit racing. He didn't want to merge with the IRL. He wanted to keep Champ Car going, but needed partners to do it and couldn't get anybody to come on board with him. And, and uh, that kind of just left me hanging out there with no ride. Like after Forsyth quit, I, I never had a full-time IndyCar ride after that again. I just kind of would pick up races here and there and race a couple times a year and uh, come race at Toronto and Edmonton and Indy and, and never really was able to put a put another deal together. And I, then I retired in, in 2011 after Dan Weldon got killed at, at, uh, at uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, was that was that crash kind of a, a forced retirement for you, or or put a you know a thought in your head like, hey, what what the heck am I doing here? Well, I mean, at that 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 time by 2011, I wasn't driving you know the level of equipment that I was accustomed to. At I, in 11, I was driving for Jay Penske, and uh, you know it was again it was underfunded, and you know it had a, it had some Penske crew guys, the older crew guys that had been around a long time, but they were guys that were, you know, kind of test team guys. And it just, uh, it was, it was super competitive then. And, you know, and, uh, you know, then that, that race happened at, 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 uh, Vegas and we were running pretty good. And then that, that big accident happened. And at that time I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really getting paid much to drive anymore. And, and that, that crash happened. I was in the crash, you know, bunch of guys got hurt. Will Power broke his back and, you know, cars on fire and upside down and Dan gets killed. And, and, uh, my, my mom was at the race and, and my, my wife at the time, and they were like super upset and, and we're driving back from, I've moved, had moved to Phoenix and we're driving back from Phoenix to the, from the race. And my, you know, they were both on me. Look, look, you've done everything that you wanted to do. Why do you want to do this anymore? You know, and, I still wanted to race, but you know, they, they were badgering me to stop and, and, and quit. And I, I reluctantly decided to quit, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, I struggled with that a long time. I was, you know, really pissed off and just not happy in my life. And, you know, I, I still wanted to drive, but, it, you know, still had the desire to drive. And I, I probably, should have looked into doing sports cars, but I didn't. And, uh, you know, ultimately my marriage at the time fell apart with 
with my wife at the time because I was moping around the house in a bad mood and you know she got yeah. she got fed up with it and split with another with another guy and you know so my my life was kind of in turmoil at that time and then uh a couple years had rolled by and you know just kind of and then I got an op- an offer to come to Long Beach and and fill in for Wally Dollenbach and uh to do the do the TV mm. uh because he had some prior commitment with his daughter and and once once I did that, I mean, I did after that, I did one race and then I did it for eight years for them. So that that kind of gave me a little lifeline to be back in the paddock and be around the crew guys and, you know, be around racing and be around fans. And, you know, I, I you know, don't get me wrong. I still I still missed driving, but, it, you know, I was still involved, involved in the sport, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's funny, you know, how much it, it's a double-edged sword racing, you know, you think you can leave it when you don't have the funding or the, you know, the season's not there for you, but you still find yourself watching every race and find yourself wanting to go, go to the races. So yeah, I think that's good to have a, have a purpose, you know, be in there. And and now, I mean, with the SRX deal, that looks like a whole ton of fun. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how much that I'd missed actually driving the car because it kind of, you know, those feelings kind of went away after after a few years, and and uh, you know, then I SRX kind of came about, and uh, the first year, I think a lot of people never really thought it was going to get off the ground, but you know, for for whatever reason, um, you know, my contract with NBC, the the guy who runs NBC, just really didn't like for some reason he considers SRX to be a conflict of interest for him with IndyCar. He just doesn't, you know, he, he just, you know, he, he let me, you know, I had a contract with NBC and I told them, I said, Hey, I want to go do this SRX thing, but I'm going to miss a few races. And they weren't really keen about that, but they said, okay, we'll let you do it. Uh, You know, but then, then the second year came around year two and, 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 uh, you know, Hinch was the announcer for SRX the first year. And then they, they, you know, the second year comes around and I, you know, I got offered to do SRX again. I really enjoyed driving again. And I mean, who wouldn't enjoy racing equal cars with guys like Tony Stewart, and Bobby Labonte and, you know, the, the Elliot's to race yeah. against Chase Elliott. He's a, currently the best guy out there and I'm getting to race against him and I'm getting to race against Matt Kenseth and all these huge NASCAR stars and not only them, Elio and Tony Kanaan and Marco and guys I've raced against and have, I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's, it's super serious. So second year comes around and I, I said to NBC, I said, Hey, I have a, you know, you know, I got offered another contract uh, and they were like, well, you, you know, you gotta, either, you gotta make a decision. Either you're going to do that or, 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 or do the full IndyCar season. We can't have you doing a partial partial deal and I'm like you know I just I had missed driving so much that you know I'm now I'm 52 years old and I'm like I, I can't do this forever and I I, I want to have the opportunity to drive before it's too old before I'm too old to do it you know you don't get these opportunities in your 50s to go yeah. race against guys like that you know so I, I had to make a decision and it was either talk about racing on TV or get an opportunity to race against guys that are legends. So yeah. I just I decided that I was gonna gonna go racing and you know uh, kind of 
passed off, you know, Hinch got the deal. He lost his ride and he, he picked up the TV deal and, uh, you know, they told, they told him at NBC, you can't be an announcer on that deal. Cause the, for whatever reason, they don't like it. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of pat kind of passed off the torch to Hinch as, as, as an announcer, but, you know, I, I would like to see, you know, I, I think Hinch is a good announcer. He does a great job, but he's certainly, I think too young to mm. be not out there racing. He's like, you can get stuck in the, in the TV booth and your career kind of falls by the wayside. I think there's a lot left for Hinch in terms of driving, whether it be sports cars or Indy 500. I think, I think he needs to actively pursue that because he's still a young guy, you know, he's still in his thirties and there's a lot of opportunities still out there. And, you know, like I, when I got the NBC deal, I just stopped looking for rides anymore. And I, I think that during that time I could have been racing sports cars and I could have been doing other things, but you just, it just kind of gets away from you. And I think, you know, I think that I think there's still opportunity for Hinch to, to, to be racing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, more and more you see with social media and the internet and, and all these different opportunities coming about, um, you know, it can happen. There's there's all sorts of, I mean, look at the SRX deal, you know. That's kind of the, that's kind of the story of my life right yeah, there. Yeah, that's up good. Up until this year. Um, so I, I ask every single one of my racers this, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you listen to the odd, uh, Dale Jr. podcast and he talks about, uh, ingenuity and, uh, flat out, flat out cheating. Do you have, uh, do you have any good, uh, good cheating stories? And it doesn't have to be you. It can be a guy, you know, uh, I mean, from teams that I've driven with, I mean, not really so much, so much in IndyCar. I mean, in the, in the middle of the nineties, 94, you know, we, 93, four, we started like, uh, fooling around with like traction control and boost control and variable boosts. And, um, that was all kind of in its primitive, primitive stages. It wasn't technically, you know, it was illegal to have some type of pure traction control, but guy, you know, teams and, you know, manufacturers were kind of, circumventing the rules by, okay, we're not actually doing traction control because we're not measuring the wheel speed and, and restricting power, but we're, you know, we're doing it by, you know, restricting boost in certain gears and restricting, you know, timing. And, you know, there was always these little ways around things, which is just technology, you know, and, um, I guess that one of the weird, one of the weirdest things that I did the first time that I drove a stock car, I went to Daytona uh, in the Xfinity car, uh, which were the nationwide car. And I was with this small team and they, uh, I guess the, the biggest blatant cheating. And I, you know, they, they took the roof of the car and they acid, they acid dipped the roof. So it was like the, the cars at that time had this, it had this big wicker on the roof. Yep. like a half inch tall wicker that went right along the roof line. Right. And, uh, and it had all the, they had all these screws along the, <laughs> along the windshield on the inside. So they told me to go out to qualifying and they asked to dip the roof of the car, which was metal. So it made it real thin. So I go out to qualify and I leave the pits and they said, all right, there's a, <clears throat> there's a bungee cord 
hooked under the seat, and there's a bunch of uh, T-handle, like, screws. When you leave the pits, screw all these deals in on the windshield, and it's going to push the windshield out at the top. (coughs) And then under the seat, reach under the seat, and then hook this bungee cord to your helmet. You know, I had this helmet strap that was hooked to the roof. Yep. You know, like you would hang your helmet on. You hang your helmet on this little hook, J hook. Pull this bungee cord out and hook it to the hook it to that, and then the roof goes like caves. It caves <laughs> in, right? So it takes it takes this wick. It took this wicker that was on top of the roof, and it it went like like this and bent it in, right? So you go out and qualify do like your two laps and then un- unhook this thing and like tuck it back under the seat and then unwind all these screws to bring the windshield back in. And that was like, that was like probably the biggest form of form of cheating I've ever seen. And that was like some little tiny. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's such an elaborate procedure to freaking change the roof line of the car. Yeah. <laughs> oh man uh what what podcasts are you listening to these days or what are you listening to what are you putting in your ears these days uh i mean I, i've actually been doing more doing more racing podcasts i did i did like i've done three or four in the last month so i mean uh but i i i generally listen to i mean obviously i listen to i listen to some some joe rogan stuff um you know, I don't really want listen to too many podcasts. Um, I'll occasionally listen to Marshall Pruitt mm. podcast, um, but generally, generally my days are pretty structured. I get up super early. I get up at like five. I work out in my gym in the house. I go run a couple errands. I get home. I have a nap at one o'clock from from one till about three, and then I'll do another little workout at four to five o'clock, and then I'll have wife. I'll have uh, dinner with my girlfriend and then we'll hang out and watch TV or, you know, she likes, she really, she's really into Joe Rogan and she's really into politics and I could really care less about a lot of that stuff. But, um, and then I'm usually in bed pretty early. I'm in bed by like eight or nine o'clock. Right. Unless, unless I'm in, unless I'm out partying somewhere, (laughs) which you've probably, probably seen on my Instagram. It looks like you had a good weekend last weekend. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, I'm paying for it. So we had four, four days in Vegas of, and only probably eight hours of sleep in four days. Oh, that's good stuff. You, uh, (laughs) so it's because of your girlfriend. I see you, uh, it's mostly, mostly it looks like you're just trying to be a shit disturber on your Instagram a little bit, posting the odd political thing. Yeah, I mean, I just try. I mean, I just try to like post, like I poke, I poke at both sides and just try. I mean, it's more more satirical and just poking fun at how ridiculous the whole everything is down here. It's just completely out of control, and you know, and uh, you guys had it in Canada too with all the lockdowns and the truckers and the. I mean, it's just it's just things are just getting out of control, and it's just it, the whole thing seems to be ridiculous to me. No, I completely but that's, that's, agree. That's a whole. That's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. That's no. a whole. Not, that's a whole other podcast. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, do you have any advice, parting advice for uh, aspirational uh, race car drivers? You know, a kid in go karting or a kid who's reasonably fast in any discipline. Uh, you know, some advice for them. 
Well, I mean, the bottom line is, is that, uh, I mean, it's, it's always tough to like rich kids always seem to make it because they've got the money and the backing, but you can, you can still make it. I mean, look at guys like, like we talked about earlier, like AJ Almadinger. He's a kid that had no money. His dad worked for a carpet installation company. He installed carpet for a living. They were dead broke. And if you, if you are a winner and you win races and you, you'll, you can make it, you can still make it in the stage. I know it's tough and, it, and there's a lot of rich kids out there that seem to just make it on money alone. But if, if you have the talent and you have the desire, uh, you've got to have also, you've got to be able to do everything now. You, you, you got to win. You got to be good with sponsors. You got to be able to find sponsors and you got to have, have the social media. It's not just about driving anymore. A classic case of that is, you know, again, like we talked about tag, you know, a guy who he's got the talent, but never got the breaks of getting the full time, big paying job. He's had to scratch and claw and find the money to do it. And it's, it's a lot of work to, to do that. And, you know, you've got to, you got to work every angle. Yep. No, that's good. I, uh, I appreciate you coming on and, and spending the, uh, the two hours with me. It, uh, that was a good one. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Good care. luck. Good luck the rest of the season. Appreciate it. Thank you.